All right, let's jump in. Uh, this story of the Bible, as we've been saying, is a true story, and it is our story. And this part of the plot that we are going to cover today is particularly exciting because it's our part. It's the rise of the church, you could say. So just to review before we jump into this section, starting from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, we saw God's purpose, image, fill, and rule, his purpose for humanity. Then we saw a problem, sin or disobedience, and death. Everyone disobeys, everyone dies. And then through the rest of the Old Testament, we saw the pattern. As hard as the people try, they cannot fix the problem. And that pattern is seen clearly, maybe most clearly, in the covenant that God makes with Moses and the Israelites, which includes how to atone for your disobedience, your sins, through animal sacrifices. But even that, they keep abandoning the covenant. However, during that pattern of failure, there are some promises made by God. Eve's offspring will defeat Satan. Abraham's offspring will bless the nations. David's offspring will provide a Messiah to reign on the throne forever. And then we came to the New Testament last time. The perfect Jesus comes on the scene. And he provides a solution to the problem of sin in a new covenant. So Jesus himself breaks the pattern of disobedience. He himself dies as the final and complete sacrifice for sin. He raises from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death and Satan. And he begins to reign as David's heir, as Messiah. And Jesus, we saw, is the perfect image of God because he himself is God. And we said of all of those Old Testament covenants really find their fulfillment in Christ. There are still some questions kind of lingering at this point in the story. Where do we go from here? We see forgiveness of sins has been accomplished, but how do people enter into that new covenant with God? We see that death has been defeated, but what does that mean for humanity? What about God's purpose for humanity in the beginning? Image, fill, and rule. Jesus was the perfect image of God, but what about the rest of imperfect mankind? And what about the filling and ruling part? And the rest of the New Testament answers these questions. So starting with the book of Acts now, after the four Gospels, I want to look at the main events very briefly here. If you could turn to Acts chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, um, and maybe put your finger also in the table of contents. We'll look at the epistles really quickly. But turn to Acts 1, and maybe your table of contents. Acts uh, continues on with basically historical narrative. It's a continuation of the story where Luke left off and the other gospel writers left off. Uh, Luke picks back up with the book of Acts where Jesus, after his resurrection, he appears to many people for about 40 days and he gives some final instruction to his apostles, the 12 or the 11, the unique disciples of his. And then we see at the beginning of Acts, Jesus ascended into the heavens from Jerusalem. His final words that we have recorded kind of serve as an outline for the rest of this part of the narrative, okay? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 gives us that layout. But you will receive, he says, as he's about to ascend into heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's the outline. In the very next chapter, the Holy Spirit, like Jesus said, came onto those early disciples. It came like a rushing wind, it says in chapter 2. And he gave those apostles, at that point, supernatural abilities to speak in other languages so that they might proclaim to everyone the good news about Jesus. And then the rest of Acts after that speaks of those people, just like Jesus said in 1.8, being witnesses in Jerusalem and then spreading throughout all Judea and Samaria further away and outward and beyond. And then it talks of them doing that all over Asia Minor and Greece and eventually pushing on towards even Rome. And Paul becomes a lead character. He's kind of the leading missionary in all of those, in that spreading of the gospel. So we see the gospel start to spread gospel being this really good important announcement about king jesus and through acts they are preaching the message that jesus was killed he was buried and he was resurrected from the dead that he is the son of god that he is the jews long-awaited messiah that he is the king and the creator of the whole world and based on this message we see the new covenant community now not just Israel, but the church made up of all Christians, we see them begin to rapidly grow and spread to the ends of the earth amid much opposition. And again, that outline is right there in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That happens in chapter 2. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's chapters 2 to 7. To all Judea and Samaria, that's chapters 8 through 12, and to the end of the earth, 13 and, and following. Then after the book of Acts, we get to what are called the epistles, uh, which is kind of another word for letters. And um, if you remember how in the Old Testament, the uh, wisdom literature and the prophets that come kind of after that introductory uh, or that timeline of Israel, the prophets wisdom literature, they kind of, as far as the timeline goes, they fit into that latter portion of the earlier narrative. Um, in a similar way, the epistles or the letters fit into the end of the book of Acts and, and shortly after the book of Acts. Okay, that's, that's where they land in the timeline, though they're not trying to follow some uh, chronology of, of historical narrative. Okay, but they, they, they fit into that section, uh, namely the end of Acts. Um, if you look at your table of contents, you'll see after uh, the book of Acts, we get to um, the epistles and the first 13, I can show you how it's kind of laid out here, the first 13 epistles are written by Paul. Uh, the first nine are written to churches in Roman cities, and then there's four to individuals. Um, we see uh, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, um, Three of those are the pastoral epistles, we call them. And these letters were written to people and churches where Paul's missionary journey had taken him in what we read the book of Acts. And Paul is con um, con corresponding with them about doctrine and about how to live out this new way of Jesus. Then we get to eight, what are called the general epistles, starting with the book of Hebrews. Those are written more to a widespread audience than just a particular church or person. And most of those are written by the person whose name is on the book. Peter, first and second, you know, John, first and second, third. Um, those are of the 12 apostles. And then James and Jude, who are Jesus' brothers, they write the general epistles. 
A couple quick words on just interpreting epistles. Epistles, like I said, are similar to letters. So you'll see a greeting, hey, I hope you're well. You kind of have the main body, whatever they want to communicate, a farewell and that sort of thing. And so we are to read those as letters. Um, it's not historical narrative like other parts, the Gospels, Acts, much of the Old Testament. Um, but we read it like a letter. And um, epistles, though, in the Bible are more, a little more f formal and orderly, almost like an essay, than a casual letter that we might find in our day. Uh, it wasn't easy to send letters like it is for us, or now it's emails or text messages. Um, so there was a lot more work that had to go into getting them written down and then having them delivered. And it would have gone through several, most of them probably several scribal kind of revisions to get it exactly right, what the author wanted to say. And when it was received, it would have been read out loud publicly. Even if it's a personal letter to someone or to a church, it was, it was written for, for a group to hear. And generally, many people in the city would have heard uh, where, it was, uh, where it was received. So when reading these, we have to remember that there's a historical context, just like the Old Testament that we've read, the prophets. There's a historical context that makes a difference to the meaning, uh, a difference than to what they, if they were written yesterday or today. And we would do well to try to understand and, and compare with other you know, sources just to, to know what was going on in that day to best understand the meaning of those letters. One interpretive key to, to uh, understanding epistles is just to look for the underlying principles that the writer is trying to communicate and then consider in our day some analogous situations and make the appropriate um, application. So that's how the books of the New Testament are laid out. We'll leave the final book, the Revelation of John, for next time uh, in part six of this series. So what's going on here theologically as the story unfolds? What part does this section play? Again, it's a big, a big chunk. If you remember from last time, Jesus was enacting a new covenant to supersede the old or Mosaic covenant. And since Christ, God's people don't live under the Mosaic covenant anymore, under the law. Some of it is still applicable to us as kind of a standard for Christian living or Christian morals, but we aren't somehow now fulfilling our side of a contract by living it out. Remember, Christ fulfilled the law that the Israelites couldn't do. In a similar way, we could never have kept the law. So what is this new arrangement, this new contract, so to speak? Remember, covenants are made between two parties. Well, on God's side, God gives, God offers forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Jesus, victory over death, aka eternal life, through the resurrection of Jesus, and he gives to his people the kingdom. We'll talk more on that later, but his, his presence, his good rule, his perfection. In a word, God gives salvation. That's his side of the covenant, you could say. He gives salvation. Well, what's our side? What do we give? How do we enter into that and keep that new covenant with God? Well, in a word, faith. Faith. So the blessings of the new covenant, God's side, are not secured by our obedience to a law or laws, but by faith. That biblical word faith, really important that we understand, Greek word pistis, means a loyal belief. 
It's not just to believe in God, but it's to confess, I believe him. I need him. I trust him. I give myself to him. I've heard it, I think, accurately translated as it's giving our allegiance to him. Our allegiance. That's our side of the covenant. It's just faith in God. Acts 10.43, everyone who has faith receives forgiveness of sins in his name. John 3.16, whoever believes or has faith, that's the same word, in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we don't enter the new covenant by fulfilling the law or by atoning for our own sins. That was accomplished all by the perfect one, Jesus Christ, in his name. We just receive his salvation by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. And after studying the pattern of the Old Testament, it's almost an understatement to say it's not a result of works. No one may boast. <laughs> Obviously, humanity has no reason to boast in our salvation. The sign, by the way, of the Old Covenant uh, we didn't talk about is was circumcision for the Hebrews or Israelites. The sign of the new covenant now is baptism. So that's kind of some of the, the, the doctrine of the new covenant, but let's get back into the story here and how does that fit, okay? Why did God in Christ enter into this new covenant with those who exercise faith? First, we could say certainly because he loves us. He doesn't want for us to perish and to experience the, the penalty and death of our sin. He wants us to have eternal life. He wants us now to have life abundantly. That's why he offers this new covenant. And that's the, the correct answer that we, if we grew up in church, have, have, have definitely learned from Scripture. But that alone, I would say, doesn't really complete the story. If you think back to the whole story, why this new covenant? Because he has a purpose for us. What was that purpose? Be God's image, fill the earth, and rule. And we ended last time with the question, how will God fulfill that created purpose for mankind? In the New Testament, we begin to see language, and especially here in, in the section we're covering today, we see language describing those who have faith as becoming new creations. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul says. The old has passed away, the new has come. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are, in a sense, recreated. Or another way of saying that is we are born again. Not only will we be resurrected after we die because Christ has accomplished victory over death, but God is doing something in those who have faith now upon conversion. We already, in a way, died and now we have been born again. And when we are born again, it's a different kind of birth, right? It, it's a different quality of life than those who are born like we all have been, only of the flesh. Jesus talked about all this in a conversation he has with a religious leader, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, where he talks about being born again and says that we must be born of the Spirit, not only of the flesh. So here's what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, in this new covenant. He puts his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in 
us. Now, before the new covenant, the Holy Spirit was alive and well and active in the, in the Old Testament. We read about him, but he would only kind of come on people selectively and temporarily. And he would do that at times to enable people to accomplish some kind of specific purposes so that he could unfold his plan. But then he would, he would leave. He would kind of come and go. The psalmist says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, kind of this, this understanding that he would come at times and go at times. But since Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit now, we find out in the new covenant, indwells all who put their faith in him. He takes up residence in their lives. Peter describes this to the people of Jerusalem in the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He's saying, express faith, give your allegiance to him, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul and Jesus speak of this gift of the Holy Spirit as, as a permanent residence in the life of the believer, or the one who has faith. The life of those who put their faith in Jesus, and this is important, and, and, and those who have received the Holy Spirit, listen to this, that life is qualitatively different than the life of those who are under the old covenant or who were. That spirit in the believer is constantly regenerating and renewing us, or I would say he's, he's molding our hearts. Do you remember the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, especially Ezekiel, this foreshadowing that I've read a couple times from the Old Testament prophets? God promised blessing of the new covenant. And because they were under the old and they couldn't obey, here's what it sounded like. And I will give you, in this future covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the new covenant and if you think about it, like what would be to keep us from falling into the same exact pattern of disobedience and failure that everyone else did before them all throughout the Old Testament, well, they won't do that anymore because now they're being changed from the inside out by God himself. He says, I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you now to walk in my statutes. So cool. What does that change look like? We are being conformed, Paul says, to the image of Jesus. Now, how cool is this? God, by his spirit, is making us now to look like Jesus, who is the perfect image of God. I read last time, uh, for Christ, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Christ is the perfect image of God. But if you go on to the next verse there in Colossians 2, verse 10, and you have been filled in him. Christ, the image of God, put in you now by his spirit. I also read last time from 2 Corinthians 4. It talks about how Christ is the image of God. But then in the very next verse, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And listen, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has 
shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. From where is that glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, his image, where is that shining from? It's shining from our hearts where he now resides. So do you see what's happening here as the story unfolds? I'm super excited about this. God created us or mankind to bear his image and we, the sons of Adam, failed time and time and time and time again to display that image and nothing in us could recover that image. But then Jesus, the son of God, not only perfectly displayed that image, but he puts that image back into us with the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I will complete the plan that I started. I will fulfill, oh man, my purpose for you. And he gives his spirit. That process, um, obviously, of being conformed to the image of Jesus, it doesn't happen all at once, right? We all know that. We're still, in a sense, Adam's descendants. We still struggle to obey because of this sinful nature, our past life, the flesh. Um, no one except Jesus perfectly displays the image of God. But I want you to know, we are being changed, even now. And this change necessarily happens in the lives of all who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Another way to say that is that we are being made mature or complete, or oftentimes it's translated in our English scriptures, perfected. Okay? Now, this makes a lot of people uncomfortable, a lot of Christians uncomfortable, because we've been taught, oh, we're just filthy sinners, we can't do anything right, which shows probably a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament. But wait, we now have the Spirit of God. We now can make progress. That's our P word for today, progress. And if we aren't being changed, I would ask them, what's really the new covenant? Like it really isn't that much different than the old. And God lied when he said, I'll put a new heart and a new spirit in you and I'll cause you to obey. We are not just like the Old Testament people of faith. We have the helper that Jesus promised. And that helper, God himself, is not powerless to affect change in our life, to make progress. Now, I don't want to overplay this, but I also don't want to underplay this. And it seems like the, the New Testament writers are much more comfortable talking about humans being perfected by God in this life than we are comfortable with it. But listen to the, what the New Testament writers say. Paul 2 Corinthians, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, listen, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. James, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's Peter's version. Be holy because God is holy. And listen to John, the Apostle John's logic about our transformation, our progress in Christ. He says this in 1 John 3, 5 through 10. You know, he says, that Christ appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, listen, abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Listen, y'all. If we aren't being changed more and more to look like Jesus, then his spirit is not in us. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about being perfected, made better and better, more like Jesus. And we have to do that, obviously, with a lot of tact. But this is what God is doing in us. Theologians call it progressive sanctification. Maybe this is some of the reason that we don't see significant change in the life of believers because we're misunderstanding this reality. We tell ourselves, well, we're just like Israel. We just can't get it right. But Jesus did, and his spirit in us now does. Now, those same writers are very clear that we aren't yet complete. We aren't yet perfect. But the term that kind of helps me the most, and this is my term, not the Bible, is, is trajectory, right? We are on a path of being sanctified, being transformed into the image of Jesus. And we say we're progressively becoming like Jesus, not boasting in ourselves. That's where, that's where the tact comes in. Because... What's really the difference between you and me versus the Israelites? Is it something in us that we finally figured it out? Humanity finally mustered up enough willpower to obey God? No. God made it happen. He says, because you can't, I will. So we're definitely not perfecting ourselves. Paul says in Galatians, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the insinuation is, no, you're, you're being perfected by the Spirit of God in you. It's him doing that work. He makes real clear, he says, for this I toil, this is Colossians 1, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So be assured, when we are being perfected, it is God who gets the praise. But I want you to know that there is a qualitative difference between Old Testament believers in God and someone who has put their faith in the resurrected Jesus. And, and thereby that person has been filled with the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit who is changing them uh, to not continue in the pattern of failure, but to begin a trajectory of obedience. Now we can begin to please God. Now we can begin to obey him. We can respond favorably to this new covenant. We're no longer slaves to sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.8. 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. So by giving his new covenant people the Holy Spirit, God is working toward his purpose for mankind to bear his image, which in humanity looks like Jesus. Image. Quickly, what about to fill and to rule? To fill. Here's what I found. Siri wanted to answer that. This process of filling the earth with the image of God has already begun. 
He makes us into his image bearers by his spirit. And he gives some commands and promises then. This is Jesus. The Great Commission. We talk about it all the time in our churches. Jesus, before he leaves earth, says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So think about this. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who is looking more and more like their teacher. And in our case, it's somebody who's looking more and more like Jesus, who is the image of God. So the Great Commission is go and make these image bearers of all nations, or Acts 1-8, to the end of the earth. So isn't this just the Great Commission, a clear continuation of the creation mandate all the way at the beginning of the Bible, where we were created to image God and fill the earth, and the Great Commission is really calling us just to the same very thing, make disciples of all nations, image God and fill the earth, all nations. So you see, God never gave up on his purposes for mankind, and now he is fulfilling that in his people as they carry out that command. Progress isn't only seen in the life of individual believers as they put on this new self, but progress is seen in the filling of the earth with that image as we fulfill the Great Commission. And Jesus doesn't only give that command, but he promised that progress would happen. His kingdom, he says, will spread. It'll spread like a mustard seed that eventually grows into a large tree or like leaven that spreads throughout the whole lump of dough. He promised it and it's happening. Starting with the book of Acts and the first century believers, we see that spread going. And even now, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there are still yet some unreached people groups in the ends of the earth. But the image of God in his spirit-filled church is now even filling the earth. His purpose is going forward. At the beginning of the, the lesson, I, I called this part of the story the rise of the church. And kind of unlike the rise and fall of Israel and the rise and fall and rise and fall and continual pattern of that, Jesus tells Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Fill, image, fill. It's happening in his spirit-filled believers. And for rule, uh, we will save that for next time. Here's the story, the main parts of the plot so far. We're almost done. Purpose. Problem. Pattern. Perfect. Progress. The fifth part, progress, is the church age. That's where we find ourselves in the story. The timeline of, of scripture kind of cuts off after the book of Acts and, and some of those epistles, and it leaves another gap in the story until the final book that we'll discuss next time. But we now are living in that gap. Remember, it's our story. I recently heard, and I agree with this, that this story isn't just about the work of God for us, but it's about his work in us. And we'll take some more time in the last week of this series, after the last part six, um, to talk about the role that we are to play in this beautiful story that God has written. But for now, let's just say about the plot that God is making things happen. What he started in the beginning 
in Christ and by his spirit, he is finishing because he is faithful. And like we've been doing, I just want to end with a couple of foreshadowing verses from this section to lead us into the next. And I'll just read these. I'm not going to make any comment, but we'll end here. Acts 1 verse 10, after Jesus ascended to heaven, it says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him.